Please take your Bibles. I pause on purpose. Please take your Bibles. That should just cause us to, as I've said, I know at other times, but maybe not all of you have heard it, to just sort of give a, a spiritual sigh. We have Bibles. We have the Scripture. And we can read it and we can open it. So take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. You might have already been in Philippians because if you're visiting with us, I've been preaching through the book of Philippians. In the last two weeks, I've been preaching on Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13, as we have seen the foundation of contentment and the school of contentment that God has us in to teach us to be content. And as I've been preaching on those things, I often, of course, am comparing Scripture with Scripture. And my mind has gone to this subject in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. So I thought it would be profitable for us to continue on the subject of contentment, more specifically thinking about the subject of being content with what we have and not loving money. And so I'm really just taking an extension of the subject that I've been preaching on in Philippians 4, 10 to 13. We'll see the connection as we go through these verses as we look at Hebrews 13. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 6, but we will eventually find our way to verses 5 and 6 in the subject of contentment. Hear the word of God, Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, And the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The Christian life can be summed up by one word. That word is what? Love. Love for God. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Love for the church of Jesus Christ. Love for your brother and sister in Christ. We're to love our wives, men. Wives, you're to love your husbands. Parents, we're to love our children and therefore bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're to love our neighbors. The Christian life can be summed up by the word love. And so when Jesus was asked what is the greatest and foremost commandment of all, he answered, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the foremost commandment. And he said the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The whole law can be summed up. The moral law of God can be summed up in one word in the statement, 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Galatians 5.14. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, verse 15. Romans 13, verse 8 says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, 8 and 9. We see the primacy and importance of love in the passage I just read in Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 6. Verse 1 says, let love of the brethren continue. How? Verse 2, by using your home to minister to others. By showing hospitality. How do you love the brethren? Verse 3, you love persecuted Christians by remembering them and ministering to them in prison. How do we love God? Verse 4, we love God by honoring what he has created, marriage, for his own glory. We honor God and love our husbands and wives in the marriage relationship by being faithful. Marriage is to be held in honor. And when we do that, we love God and we love our wife or our husband. So again, the Christian life can be summed up by one word. That word is love. But the object of our love must be God and the things that are consistent with his character. This is how we live the Christian life. We set our affections on God. We love what he loves. And this directs our lives. So is love for God, first and foremost, directing your life? Because if love for God is not primary then something else will be primary. You will love something or someone else rather than God. And here's where we get to verses 5 and 6. There are loves that will lead us astray. We are to love others, for example, but we can actually love others sinfully, contrary to the word of God, in violation to the commandments of God. For example, a man might say he loves a person, but it might just be lust, not love. A believing wife or woman, excuse me, might say she loves a man, but if that man's not a Christian, then the Bible says she should not be unequally yoked with him. So love has to be directed by the Word of God. Parents might say they love their children while they withhold correction from them. And Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds the rod hates his son. So we might call something love, but it not be love in accordance with the scriptures. So you see, we must be careful to make sure that our professed love is truly love as defined by scripture. There are things that mask themselves as love that are not. There are loves that are sinful loves. The love of self the love of sin, the love of the world. 
along with many other loves that will lead us away from love for God and true love for neighbor down a dangerous spiritual path. And so verse 5 speaks of one of those kinds of sinful loves. Make sure that your character is free from this love, free from the love of money. And a way in which you do that is you make sure that you're being content with what you have. There's the connection to what I've been preaching on the last two weeks in Philippians 4, 10 to 13. So not every love is a holy love. There are holy loves and there are unholy loves. Godly loves and ungodly loves. And here in verse 5, we see an unholy, ungodly love. And this love can grip your heart and lead you to destruction. The love of money will choke out the word of God, and it will lead you to ruin. And so here, as in other places in Scripture, we are warned not to love money. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul tells Timothy, but flee from these things. Flee! And pursue, chase after righteousness, godliness, faith. Love, perseverance, and gentleness. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying in verses 5 and 6. Make sure that a particular sinful love does not characterize your life and your heart. Make sure your character is free from this kind of love, the love of money. Instead, you should be content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Let me give you four points in the outline this morning as we go through verses 5 and 6. It will help us to understand the passage. First, we see a dangerous sin. Secondly, a protective virtue. Thirdly, a comforting promise. And then fourthly, a confident confession. Now let me just summarize that and then we'll get into the meat of it. First, a dangerous sin. We see that in verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. It's a dangerous sin that will lead the believer astray. Then he speaks of a protective virtue. How do you guard your soul from such a dangerous sin, the love of money? How can I be protected from this unholy love? Well, there is a godly virtue that will protect you from the love of money, and that virtue is contentment. So he says, being content with what you have. So there we see the protective virtue that will guard your heart from the love of money. And when you cultivate this biblical contentment, it will be a fortress against the love of money. It will protect your soul against the love of money. But then thirdly, there is a comforting promise in these words. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. 
So God himself makes a promise that's applicable to every believer in any and every circumstance, in humble means or in prosperity. Now you're hearing Philippians 4, 10 to 13. God himself has promised that he is with us. If there's humble means, God's not deserted or forsaken you. Fix your hope on God. He is your strength. He will sustain you. If you're in prosperity, rejoice in God's goodness, but still don't love money. So we have here a comforting promise, but then a confident confession. When you believe and live in light of that promise, that he will never leave us or desert us. And you can have this confident confession. For contentment is founded on the promises of God and it leads to boldness, confidence in God, even when we're in need. So even if I'm persecuted and hated by others, and that leads to poverty, being in need. That's what Paul was in at a particular point imprisoned in Rome. It was because of preaching the gospel. He was destitute and needed the ministry of the church to meet his need. But here the writer to the Hebrews says, when God is with me, that is my contentment. So that then I can confidently say that even if my poverty and need comes from persecution, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So herein we see the remedy and the cure for the love of money. We're to trust God, not riches. We're to hope in God, not our possessions. We're to serve God, not money. We're to love God. We're to be satisfied in God. We're to be content in Him. We're to guard our souls in this way from the love of money. And this can be said in many other areas. We're to trust in God, not... And you fill in the blank. The, the principles are the same. We're to hope in God. Not, and fill in the blank, not just money, but anything else. We're to serve God and not fill in the blank. And this will be a protection for our souls against many ungodly, unholy loves. But here we're talking about contentment. Guarding our souls from the love of money. So first consider a dangerous sin. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. The danger isn't money itself. Money itself is not evil. Money is not inherently good, nor is it inherently evil. The danger here is in the word love. The danger is loving riches. And this sin of loving riches, that also along with it is hoping in and trusting in riches, leads to many other sins. When we love money, it will lead to sins like lying, cheating, stealing, gambling. Sometimes it leads to the oppression and mistreatment of others in order to gain more wealth. Sometimes the love of money even leads to murder. How many murders have occurred because of the love of money? So it's a dangerous sin that leads to many other sins 
and is accompanied by many other sins. And so here the warning is make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Now notice that this is a sin of the heart. It has manifestations externally, but here he's talking about love, the heart. Here we have a sin of what one is seeking after, what one pursues, what one desires. It is the love of money that is so dangerous. So let me go back to what I already said. There are many loves that will lead you astray, and the love of money is one of those loves. It will lead you away from Christ himself. And it will lead you away from the gospel. The love of money leads to ruin. And so the writer here to the Hebrews says, make sure your character is free from this. Now the word character, translated that way here in the New American Standard, the word means manner or way. And therefore the way of life that you live and hence your character because this is the way of your life. And so what he is saying here, make sure your character, that word character as it's translated here is trying to, to, to get the idea of the Greek word that's saying, make sure that the manner and way of your life isn't driven by, and therefore your character driven by the love of money. What you love will be manifested by how you live. Your character will be shaped by what you love. That's a very important principle. It's true of the love of money. Here he says, make sure your way of life, what you're pursuing that therefore becomes what your character is, who you are, is free from the love of money. But it's also generally true that what we love directs our life and therefore our character And what we love is always manifested by how we live. So just pause for a minute and think about that and apply that not just to money, but to anything. What you love will be manifested in various ways in your life, your character. It will shape your character. If you love God, then that will be evident. Love for God will shape your way of life and your character. If you love money, that will shape your character. And as you cultivate godly character and godly contentment, your life, your character will be free from the love of money. Notice the words free from. You understand our lives should be free from certain things. That the absence of certain things is good and holy. There are some things that cannot coexist with Christ. Cannot coexist with faith in Christ. Cannot coexist with following Christ. Cannot coexist with glorifying Christ. So, following Christ... Seeking the glory of Christ, loving Christ, means that we will be without certain things in our lives. Jesus said it this way, you cannot serve God in money. If you're serving God, then you'll be, something that will be absent is serving money. You can't bow down to money and bow down to me at the same time. 
One excludes the other. A life of love for God will exclude love for money. A life of service to God will exclude service to money. And so he says here, your life should be free from this. It should be absent. And as our brother and pastor Ernest has been teaching on the mortification of, the, of sin and putting sin to death, this is a sin we have to put to death. It must be in our sight, so to speak, to kill. It's not good enough like we do sometimes to sweep it under the rug so it's not in sight. No, it has to be killed. We don't want to just put it in our closet to be hidden and to go visit every now and then. No, your life has to be free from it, the Scripture says. There should be no room for it at all. And so it says, make sure that your character, your way of life and living is free from the love of money. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he tells us what characterizes this world. The world is filled with all kinds of lusts, all kinds of misplaced loves. And he says, do not love the world. Do not love money. Do not love possessions. Do not lust after material possessions. It dominates our culture. It's pressing in all around us. And so we have to be careful not to love it ourselves and to pursue it. And so as Christians, we're not immune to sins like greed and covetousness and the love of money. There's a very real danger. That's why Psalm 62 verse 10 says, If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. That's why Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So there's this danger, boasting in, loving, desiring, pursuing. They all go together. All kinds of things that we shouldn't be desiring and pursuing and boasting in or trusting in. So we should be trusting and resting and pursuing God. You know, the love of money is addressed in the summation of the moral law found in the Ten Commandments. The first commandment in Exodus 20 verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. That actually addresses the love of money. When you love money, that's your God. And the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. When you love money, it's an idol that you may not literally bow down to, but you do in your heart. You're worshiping that thing. And God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. But then the tenth commandment in particular says, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or excuse me, your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
that addresses adultery, coveting your neighbor's wife. But it also addresses directly the love of things, material things, so that you're coveting your neighbor's house, your neighbor's circumstances, what he owns, his ox, his donkey, his car, his house. It says you don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now the word covet has to do with what you desire, what you long for, therefore what you love. So you understand that God's moral law addresses our hearts, our desires, our wants, our cravings, our affections, our loves. Sometimes we think that God's moral law just addresses external behavior. No, God's moral law addresses what we love and what we desire. And God commands not only what we are to do and not do, but what we are to love and not love. People tend to say, I can't help how I feel. I can't help what I desire. That's just what I want. God says, I can command you not to love this and to love this, not to desire this and to desire this. Not to seek after this, but to seek after that. So God's moral law addresses our hearts, our cravings, our desires, what we long for. And there are sinful desires and there are holy desires. And if those desires are not addressed, if those loves are not addressed, then they will manifest themselves in various ways in our lives. And so... Here in Hebrews, as well as throughout the scriptures, God addresses what we love. It's very convicting. Sometimes we might say, well, I've not committed that sin externally. Someone might say, I haven't committed adultery externally. I don't steal from people. I'm not a thief. But the 10th commandment explicitly says, don't desire your neighbor's wife. Don't desire and covet your neighbor's possessions. You may not go and commit an act of adultery or go steal from them, but your heart is doing that. All the commandments of God, if rightly understood, demonstrate that our sin is not merely external, but internal. It has to do not just with our actions, but our desires. And therefore, if we don't deal with our desires our loves, then there is no true lasting change. And therefore, the scripture says here, make sure your character is free from the love of money. Don't love it. It's a dangerous sin. And it falls under the category of covetousness. Let me just, I know time's running somewhat short, but let me, I'll repeat it again. I'm going to preach on the Ten Commandments. But Thomas Watson, in addressing the subject of the Ten Commandments, and the Tenth Commandment in particular, says it this way. First, he said, a man may be said to be given to covetousness. He's loving money, he's loving things. 
He says, when his thoughts are wholly taken up with the world. That is, he's consumed with the world. He's consumed with material possessions. And we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. But when we begin to be consumed with things, our minds inordinately thinking about meditating on things, desiring them, consumed with possessing them, then we're covetous. So what consumes your thoughts? Thomas Watson says this, a man may be said to be given to covetousness, we could say the love of money, when he takes more pains for getting earth than for getting heaven. He's wearying himself to get wealth. His strength is consumed with getting wealth. His time is consumed with getting wealth. And he's taking more pains for getting earth, Thomas Watson says, than for getting heaven. That is, he's more consumed with the things of the earth, its temporal wealth and pleasures, than the joys and delights of heaven. Watson said this, He will turn every stone, break his sleep, Take many a weary step for the world, but he will take no pains for Christ or heaven. He'll do some things to to gain material wealth. He's consumed with that, but not with Christ and not with heaven. You ask him to do something for a dollar and he'll be quick to do it. You ask him to do something for Christ and for Christ's church and he's disinterested. Watson goes on to say, A man is given to covetousness when he so sets his heart upon worldly things that for the love of them, he will part with the heavenly. He says this, listen to the language. I love the Puritans, the economy of words. He says, for the wedge of gold, he will depart from the pearl of great price. Wedge of gold, pearl of great price, Christ himself And he'll depart from that and he'll go after the wedge of gold. That's what Demas did in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10. Demas, having loved this present world, Paul writes, has deserted me. Demas was willing to leave ministry and ultimately the implication is Christ himself to gain the world. He lost his soul. Watson goes on to say, a man is given to covetousness when he overloads himself with worldly business. He takes so much business upon him that he cannot find time to serve God. Again, you see it in the use of time. Do I love money? How do you use your time? Are you so consumed with gaining wealth, but you're not consumed with serving God? And you understand, it's not how much you own. Sometimes we just say, well, if I'm poor, then that can't be the case. You can be destitute and still love money and be pursuing money and and it be futile. It could be ending not in wealth, but in futility and emptiness because in the providence of God, he's not allowing you to prosper that it might bring you to the end of yourself, but you're not pursuing Christ. And then Watson says this, he is given to covetousness whose heart is so set upon the world that to get it, he cares not what unlawful means he uses. In other words, he'll do anything to get it. He's willing to steal, to cheat, to lie, to deceive. He's willing to disobey God in order to gain wealth. 
He's willing to destroy God-ordained relationships to get it. That's why coveting can be you covet a man's wife. Oh, I want that, and I'll get it through any means, even adultery. Or I want something so badly that I'm willing to destroy relationships to have it. So he's given to covetousness, desiring something inordinately more than Christ when he cares not what unlawful means he uses. There are other examples of the love of money and evidences of it. Looking down upon those who don't have what you have. It's rooted in pride. Like James 2. A person in poverty walks into the church and and you treat him differently. I don't say you as in you. You know, I'm using that generally. James says you you treat him differently. And the root of it, again, could be covetousness and pride and the love of things, and now a poor person has come in. Or it could be that you have fear of your needs not being met, and it it could be a heart of covetousness, the love of money. You're not trusting God. You're envying the, the wicked who have been prosperous in various ways. And the writer to the Hebrews says, make sure that your character is free from this kind of love, the love of money which has covetousness at its root. Guard your heart. Now, he goes on to say there's a protective virtue that will guard you from it. Now, we're not going to spend as much time on it because that's the last two weeks. Make sure your character is free from the love of money. And then you see that what will protect you from that, being content with what you have. So one of the things you replace the love of money with is contentment. You replace the love of money with the love of God. And to love Him means you trust Him. You're trusting in His providence. His sovereign will in your life. And when you do that, you'll be content. And that contentment will protect your soul from the love of money. It will guard your heart from the dangerous sin of the love of money. So he says, being content with what you have. And you remember the last two weeks we've seen in Philippians 4 that Christian contentment means you're satisfied with what God has allotted to you. He's providentially provided for you. And you're trusting in His goodness. And so when you cultivate the biblical contentment that we saw the last two weeks in Philippians 4, 10 to 13, then you'll be content with what you have, not what you don't have, but with what God has graciously provided for you. And so contentment protects us from the insatiable appetite to accumulate more and more and then trusting in that accumulation of wealth. And so some questions to ask are things like this. Are are you more concerned with being rich with possessions or rich toward God? Do you long for more things or do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you seeking riches or are you seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness? 
And so you see the protective power of contentment in God that we've been seeing the last two weeks in Philippians 4. When we're content in him, trusting in him, resting in him with thankful hearts for what he has graciously provided and the allotment he has given to us, then we'll be free from the love of money. So we've talked about what that looks like the last two weeks. But I want you to see here the comforting promise in Hebrews 13. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Parallel to what we saw in Philippians 4, in verse 5, the Lord is near, remembering the nearness of God. Here, the writer to the Hebrews says, Contentment is related to this. So many things are related to this. Not being fearful and anxious is related to this. The Lord himself has said in this comforting promise, I'll never leave you. I'll never desert you. I'll never forsake you. And so it means this in regard to the love of money and contentment with what you have. In any and every circumstance, in humble means or in prosperity, God is with you. And if there is humble means... God hasn't deserted you or forsaken you. The promise here is stated negatively. What God will not do, indeed never do. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. His grip is firm. He won't let you go. He'll never lose hold of you. But stated positively, he will always be with us. And this is a comforting promise. A promise of the abiding presence of God in the believer. You notice, if you have a New American Standard, not all the translations do this, that I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. is in all capital letters. What that means is, is that it's a quotation or an allusion to an Old Testament passage or verse. And there's really no one place in the Old Testament that this refers to. I think it's an allusion to a number of passages and and a lot of what the Old Testament says about this. God promised Jacob in Genesis 28, 15, Behold, I am with you. Moses reminds Joshua of this truth in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. God promised Joshua in Joshua 1, 5, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. In 1 Chronicles 28, verse 20, David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear or be dismayed. For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. In Isaiah 41, 10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Isaiah 41, 13, I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says, Do not fear, I will help you. It's throughout the Bible. So many have found comfort in that promise. We find comfort today in the hymn, Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. You see the analogy of Scripture as we compare it together. God is present to bless the believer and to strengthen the believer. I can do all things. I can live in poverty and in prosperity, every circumstance, through him who gives me strength. 
all I have needed, thy hand has provided. So in light of that comforting promise of the presence of God, then we see a confident confession. When there is contentment that's founded upon the promise of God, it leads to a confidence and a boldness, even if we find ourselves in need, even if, I believe in the context here, if persecution and the hatred of men leads you to be in need. So that, he says in verse 6, we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? God has not promised there will be no trials or testing for our faith, but he has promised to strengthen us in any and every circumstance so that we can confidently say this. There are two statements or two declarations in verse 6 and then a question. The two statements. First, the Lord is my helper. Second statement, I will not be afraid. Question, what will man do to me? Again, capital letters in the New American Standard. Referring back to Old Testament passages, Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, verse 11, In God I put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So here's the confident assertion and declaration is made. The Lord is my helper. He's the one who comes to my aid. He's the Lord. And so there's a progression from that, another confident assertion. I will not be afraid. I say it's a confident, it says it in the passage, so we may confidently say, it's not I will try not to be afraid. <laughs> it's confident. I will not be afraid. When we live in light of who he is and the promise of his presence to care for, to strengthen us in every circumstance, then we confidently say, I will not be afraid. Here again, we see the protective power of contentment as defined in Scripture. It protects me not only from the love of money, but it protects me from fear. Said, so, but what if my poverty is because man is seeking to harm me because of my faith in Christ? What if our possessions, like in the book of Hebrews, he refers to those that they, they lost their land, possessions, their homes, their livelihood, and were put in prison. They were destitute because of their faith in Christ. Well, if we're free from the love of money, being content with what we have, living in light of the nearness of God to the believer, here's what we can confidently say and ask. What will man do to me? What will man do to me? Under the sovereign hand of God, man might persecute you, imprison you, and take your possessions. I don't love it anyway. My hope's in God. My contentment is in Christ who gives me strength. Therefore, what can man do to me? The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever, and that's what I'm seeking. As Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, 
but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, when we're content in Christ, it protects us from the love of money, it protects us from fear, and it causes us to persevere in the worst of circumstances. What can man do to me? I believe this is what the Apostle Paul was referring to in Romans 8, beginning in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? All these things as he's persecuted for the sake sake of Christ. He says, but in all these things... We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, we can confidently confess this. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So herein is the remedy and cure for the love of money. We trust in God, not riches. We hope in God, not our possessions. We serve God, not money. We love God. We're satisfied in Him. We're content with what we have, whether it's much or little and even nothing. For he will never leave you nor forsake you. He's present to bless you and strengthen you. So fix your hope on God. Find your contentment in him. And love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And that will guard your soul from many, many unholy sinful loves. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Father, we thank you for these things that are true. And Lord, we pray that this would be applied not only to our possessions and our financial state and our bank accounts, but those things plus every other thing in life. That no temporal thing would be our hope and our trust. That we would not love things that are temporal. We would love you, the creator, God who is to be worshipped, our Savior, our Heavenly Father. May we love you with our heart and soul and mind and strength. Trust you. Find joy in serving you and therefore find contentment in you. Father, guard us from the love of things. Guard us from every unholy love. And may we guard our own souls from those things by your grace as we seek to make sure that our character is free from the love of money and any other thing but being content with what we have and who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's stand together.
for benediction. Repeat the words of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. And let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Amen.